It's Arrested Development. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the extraordinary David Cross. David, I love how David on your site, it talks about you as an inventive performer, writer, and producer. And I think inventive is a great word. I'm sure that was one of yours. Um, You are completely unique and your body of work is without equal. And we are thrilled to have a chance to talk to you today. Well, thank you. I, uh, and thank you for that, uh, 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 hyperbolic uh, introduction. <laughs> I don't know if I would, uh, I wouldn't go that far, but I'm, I, I'm certainly proud of most of what I've done and it's, uh, and it's place in the world of American comedy. So sure. Thank you. In, in the Pantheon. So we have some odd parallels. We're both just about exactly the same age. Um, I spent a lot of time in Georgia. I know you spent a lot of time in Georgia. Um, and I'd well, I love to ask where I could ask your, uh, where were you in Georgia? I went to Emory. So I graduated, uh, you graduated Northside High School in 1982. I graduated Cardoza High School in Bayside, Queens in 1982. Uh, and, um, uh, and I, 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 that may be the full extent of what we have in common, actually, now that I really well, think what, uh, what were you studying at uh, Emory? I went to Emory. Um, Emory bred doctors and lawyers. So mm-hmm. every single one of my friends went to graduate school and was a doctor or lawyer. I was not. Um, I majored in uh, political science and sociology. Mm-hmm. And um, through my mom, uh, I got a job working in the mayor's office. She cut out a newspaper article. Uh, for me. I don't know if your mom used to cut out little articles for you when you were younger, but that was something uh, my, my mom loved to do. I don't think so. I don't yeah. And she would always give me little, oh, Matthew, you should call this one or call that one. And under Mayor Koch, who you may remember, mm-hmm. there was something called the Commission on the Year 2000. And it was sort of a, a strategic plan for the future of New York. Uh-huh. And uh, through sheer merit, which is uh, shocking, uh, I got a job as a policy analyst for the commission on the year 2000. So I was actually going to stay in Georgia. In fact, I had a lot of friends in Roswell where you spent a lot of time. Um, but the best opportunity was back in New York. So back I came. Okay. Yeah, not that interesting, really. But but thank you for asking. So Put some vigor in there. There you go. So you graduate Northside High and you immediately leave and come up to New York. Um, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I didn't come, I didn't move up here. I just uh, was really, really desperate to get out of Atlanta. And I had an opportunity because my grandmother who had a place in uh, White Plains um, uh, was going on this like three month cruise around the world. And, um, and she said I could stay at her place. And, um, and she actually got me kind of a, a little part-time job too, uh, which was terrible. Actually, it was, it was just awful. And it was a very uh, lonely, depressing time. Uh, and I would go into the city. I, you know, I'm, I'd 
kind of just turned 18 and I was, uh, uh, um, you know, just lost. And as a, as a human being and as whatever I thought I was supposed to do, and uh, I knew I wanted to do comedy and it sort of started doing open mic nights and stuff like that. But, uh, um, and I knew I wanted to be in New York and, um, and I really wanted to get out of Atlanta. Uh, and so I just took this opportunity and the day after I graduated, I came up to my grandmom's, she left and I was kind of based out of there and I would mostly just uh, go into the city in the, uh, uh, sometimes during the day, but quite often at night and I'd come home in the morning and, you know, it was a much, 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 much different city back in 1982. Um, and I would go to Times Square and I would go to, you know, Peep World and I would walk around and I'd go to a bar and, you know, have nurse some beers there and um, uh, try to go see bands. And, uh, and that's pretty much what I did. And then I would live kind of hand to mouth. I'd whatever money I would have, I'd, you know, uh, you know, get a calzone and then carry it with me for the entire rest of the day and nibble on it as I, you know, that would be my meal for the day. And, um, and yeah, that's, that's what I did. And then I came back, I went back to Atlanta probably, you know, in, um, I, I mean, I was probably up here for about, you know, two months maybe. And you knew comedy was, you know, your passion you were clearly a funny kid. Were you? You were voted most humorous at your high school. Uh, I was, yeah, I was. I and, campaigned for it very hard. And was it more stand-up sketch or a little bit of both? Uh, it was almost all. Uh, uh, I mean, I did have some things that uh, were kind of sketchy, where I did characters uh, it, within my stand-up, but I didn't really write sketch. I had no outlet for sketch. I mean. Uh, but I would do, it, it was, I was doing stand up. Um, but again, they had these kind of characters, uh, character driven things and then pieces, I guess. And then, um, also for a long time until like, until I got, uh, known, I would also go up as kind of a fake character and try, you know, not in an obvious way and try to engage the audience that, I was this one type of person um, that was usually like kind of based on a archetype of a com comedian of that time and um, and then subvert the whole thing and just kind of confuse the audience and make them uncomfortable. That used to be part of my thing that I was, I would do that I couldn't do anymore once I became a known entity. Right, right. And at some point you weave your way to Boston and that's where things, you meet a lot of key people in your life and- Oh, uh, for sure, yeah. Uh, that was that was huge. Like I, I, I got really, really, really lucky. Like just, I, I think back on how insanely lucky I was that I was in Atlanta when that music scene was popping and was when the Athens Atlanta yeah. music scene was, was huge. And there were so many great bands, so many great artists and a uh, really creative community. And then I went to Boston in 1983 and got there for a, a renaissance of comedy and uh, music there. And I was there for that whole scene and, uh, you know, got to be a part of that. And then and then, you know, eventually go into L.A. and, you know, uh, 
uh, hopping on and being a part of that, what became known as the alternative comedy scene. So I, I got, I, I was, I was, uh, it was very, I was lucky to be, you know, in those places at those times, you know? Yeah. People don't know. I mean, I'm glad you referenced Athens and and you, we were there at the same time when REM was blowing up and mm-hmm. the B-52s. That was a, a great, great town and oh a, great, a great music scene. Between Atlanta and Athens, you had uh, REM, B-52s, Pylon, uh, Now Explosion, OOK, The Method Actors, The Brains, uh, Barbecue Killers, uh, uh, Swimming Pool Cues. I mean, there were so many great, really cool bands. Uh, Even the producers, the producers who were like kind of, you know, power pop, Uh, like they were great. And... um, um, yeah, it was a lot of a lot of cool stuff to go see. Fantastic stuff. And nineteen ninety, give or take, um, things really start to crystallize in a lot of ways, a Catch a Rising Star, which is a legendary folklore in the history of stand-up in New York. Yeah, well, this was uh, the Catch a Rising Star in Boston, which was- Oh, Catch a uh, Rising Star in Boston, okay. Yeah, my, my I, was, I, was, I was still in Boston and that was in Cambridge. And there was, uh, I know people, you know, the, the people that know of the, those worlds, like they, they there was a, uh, there were there were two different uh, styles of comedy, two different philosophies of comedy, and the 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 venues that uh, one could go work in, and uh, um, it wasn't as like uh, uh, what am I trying to say? There, there wasn't as distinctive a difference because as people assumed there was. Uh, like, you know, we're the intellectual snobs and they're the jerks, you know, or whatever, <laughs> they're the bro jerks. And, and there were, um, uh, but so many of us all hung out together, played softball together, like three, four, four days a week and did gigs together. Um, and so, you know, personality wise, we all hung out together, but where we got to do stand up was, was quite different. Like, uh, you know, there was the, uh, um, comedy connection, Nick's, uh, 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 comedy, comedy clubs. And then there was catch, which was the, you know, the hipster, you know, what became known as alternative comedy, that kind of thing. And, uh, um, and then the places that kind of had both like stitches and, uh, um, played against Sam's. Um, but it was, uh, again, just a huge, like this amazing, amazing scene that just f- for my generation. And, you know, we're talking about uh, Janine Garofalo, uh, Mark Barron, Louis CK, uh, um, uh, Lord Keitlinger. Uh, I mean, all these people that came out of that scene, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing, you know, dozens, but uh, um, you know, it was, it was pretty, pretty amazing. And we were like all coming up together, you know, it's pretty cool. 
Because I, I knew a, a lot about, because uh, I was friendly with Rick Newman about Catch in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. But I must say, I was ignorant that there was Catch in Boston as well. Yeah, and it was not like the New York Club. It was very different. And it was um, uh, uh, the guy who booked it, uh, this guy Robin Horton, uh, was, was quite responsible for that. Um, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. But it was very, he had very, he had a strict uh, ethos. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some, there's some bookings that he really, you know, uh, tried not to, you know, tried to, to, to lose and, you know, explain this is the audience. And he was the guy who gave me uh, the slot on, it was either Monday or Tuesdays. And there was uh, um, there was open mic night on Monday and the Tuesday was like new talent. It was basically the same thing. And uh, I think it was his idea. I know Mark Marin helped me a lot with this initially. I'll have to ask him to. Uh, um, but Robin, so so they were <laughs> they were shows if you were hosting it where you could just get away with anything. I mean, you're hosting an open mic night in Cambridge for fuck's sake. I mean, you could do whatever the fuck you want. And so I started this thing uh, and actually Robin came up with the name cross comedy. uh, And it was, uh, so I had this whole group of folks. uh, Some of you went on to big and better, bigger and better things. And some people you may not remember, but, but it had an amazing lineup. It had, uh, H. John Benjamin, Sam Cedar, Jonathan Groff, who went on to be the head writer for Conan, Lauren Dabrowski, who was a head writer and producer for Mad TV, and uh, Paul Kozlowski and Helene Lantry and Jim DeCroda, and just all these great Boston comic comedic minds. And, uh, um, and, and we would do these shows where nobody knew. We weren't a thing yet. So it would start where we would have plants in the audience and it would start like a normal open mic night. And then we'd have one fake comic, uh, uh, sometimes Carrie Prusa, sometimes John Ennis. John Ennis is another guy who was in it. It was, you know, what was on Mr. Show and, um, and all, you know, all these characters and we'd, we'd have them in the line. We'd have them in the uh, line outside to come in with their friends. Like we had this one bit that was, you know, Carrie Prusa played the um, the winner of Rhode Island's funniest lawyer, I think, contest. And part of the prize was you got to get a set. And so uh, he came up and he's there with his buddies who are all members of the troupe. Nobody knew who they were. They're in line. They're acting drunk from the beginning, obnoxious, staying in line for a good 20 minutes as they came in, took their table, and uh, and then we're heckling the other hacks and people are really hating them. And then uh, and then Carrie would go up and just do, tell these really dumb, unfunny jokes, you know, uh, that were all inside jokes and the tables laughing. They go talk about Dorothy Hannity. And uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, well, we have Dorothy and, uh, you know, uh, human resources. And they and these guys are going nuts. And then. He leaves, they give him a huge thing. And then they start really going into me and they're just, you know, ripping me a new one and they're being really obnoxious and everybody in the audience hates these guys, hates them. And, um, and then finally the bartender, uh, oh, you know how Catch Rise Star used to have tons of uh, 
you know, uh, just crap, you know, stuff on the back to be like a brick wall and then some shelves. And there's like, you know, just uh, ephemera, you know, whatever. And, uh, um, and so there's a baseball bat and this guy who's big, his name was Rick and he would help us with bits sometimes. And he, the bartender came from the back. He's like, Dave, you need some help. I'm like, yeah, these guys are being assholes. And, uh, and then as he walked up, I would hand him the bat, like just toss it to him. It was choreographed. And then he would take these guys and he shoved them. We had a backstage door that was next to the, to the, that was in the hallway. We were downstairs in, um, uh, in this hallway and we had a chair set up in the back there and he so he'd shove them through the back door and they'd be like hey wait a minute and I'd toss him the bat the door would close and then we he would beat the shit out of them it came back in all bloody teeth missing we had all this stuff propped uh, and then shoved them back in and then it went to a video of them being beat up <laughs> and it was all <laughs> Crazy stuff. That was a, that was a long winded little bit, but that was like one example of what we do. And then we'd be into our show and then the rest of it was uh, sketches. And one of my uh, great joys in life is a, a friendship with Susie Essman. And she's been a great mentor uh, to my son, Benny, who aspires to do what you do uh, as an enormous fan of Mr. Show. I, I vowed that I would tell him that Fuzz the Musical is his all time favorite. Oh, absolutely. That's a good one. And uh, I would hear Susie talk to my son about when she was younger, finding her voice, that it took a while to oh, same here. find yeah. her voice. Talk about that, because people outside your world don't really know what that means. Well, um, I can only speak for, for my own uh, experience, but I definitely for, oh my gosh, I'd say two years, maybe three, maybe three years of when I first started doing stand-up, the very first time I, I did a open mic night, um, and every time subsequently for for a, a while, I was I had my delivery was more like Stephen Wright. It was dry. It was there was I didn't tell any personal stories. I had jokes that were um, kind of absurdist uh, and, and kind of Steve Martin esque. I was heavily influenced by kind of Stephen Wright and Steve Martin, as far as my, the material and, and my attitude was way influenced by Andy Kaufman and, and um, which goes back to how I, I used to go up as, you know, these different characters and, and hopefully make the audience uncomfortable and they didn't know whether it was real or not. And that was a, a big part of it. And, um, and just kind of, you know, taking the piss out of, the formalities and what we had come to know of about stand-up in the early mid eighties. And, and, and it took uh, several years before I was talking about before my jokes had kind of my worldview attached to them where they really didn't at first. And, um, and just me becoming comfortable with, uh, crafting a bit that was, as I said, more, it was more personal. It was anecdotal. I never lied on stage. I never like said, so this crazy thing happened to me and made it up. I never was one of those guys, but as, as I was, you know, doing stuff that was a little bit more, uh, real, you know, about, about religion or political or topical, you know, they, it came, it, 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 
it steered away from making a an absurdist joke and then just introducing my own attitude and philosophy, uh, my worldview in there. And, um, and I also, not that this was something that I uh, was striving for or uh, that conscious of, I was only, I only became conscious of it when people would say something to me like, boy, dude, you got some balls on you or something like that. And which would, if a comic said that to me, I knew they were a shitty comic. Um, but just, I'd never, I never, it never bothered me to make jokes about the Pope or Catholicism in a Catholic town. I, I never had a problem with making jokes about Orthodox Jews or the absurdity of Judaism uh, and the uh, Old Testament in front of Jews. I just didn't care. I didn't, it didn't, you know, I didn't have that gene in me like, oh, I better make everybody happy and I better not talk about this. This will upset people. Like that was just never a concern. Not that I, not I, that I had the other thing where I was like, fuck these people. I'm going to, you know, I, you know, I'm right, going to walk right. the room. I never was never one of those guys. But um, so I think the combination of those things, you know, once I found my voice, it, I got, I had a strong voice once I did find it and it took a while for sure. And I want to keep going on sort of your journey and, and talk a little about the Ben Stiller show, but just to digress for a moment, today is a, is a tricky time in our world. Oh, do, yeah. you, do you think David, it's become harder to be a comedian? Is it harder to be funny today? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, um, I think the, that now that there are so many outlets for one's uh, the ability to do to do stand up or sketches or whatever uh, that weren't around when I was coming up, uh, you know, you would do you do a set and you would know within the moment by the people reacting, whether they had a problem and, and the problem was sort of addressed there basically. Um, but nowadays you can do a set and people who have no interest in you or your comedy uh, can, you know, will get forwarded a, a clip, whether it's audio or video of something that they had no interest in anyway. And they could take something out of context. Uh, they often do. And they go, this is bullshit. You can't make a joke about this. Um, so that is uh, phenomenally different than it was when I was coming up. Because if you if people had a problem, they had a problem at the show. Now, now you can do a show for all your fans. And then there's somebody uh, who could be very well-meaning, well, you know, uh, well-intentioned, but has a problem with a bit because, and that the context of the bit is taken away entirely. And they go, hey, you said this thing. And that's not cool. And you're, you know, you shouldn't be working anymore. Um, and so that's different, but I don't think it's harder to be funny. Uh, I don't think it's harder to be a comedian. Um, I think, you know, you just, if it, if something's, I know this is so, cliche and trite, but there's truth to it. If it's funny, it's funny. And um, I'll give you an example. Uh, 
I, I can't do the bit right now and I won't do it, but it'll be the opening of the new special that I'm shooting uh, next week. Um, but somebody came up to me today and said, hey, are, are you David Cross? Uh, yes. Oh, I thought so. You sounded like him. Um, I heard you did a Holocaust joke. Um, I said, no, it's not a Holocaust joke. It's a joke that references the Holocaust, but it's not a Holocaust joke. Oh, well, what, you know, with a little bit of attitude. Oh, well, what was it? I go, I'm not going to do the whole bit for you right now, but uh, that person was mistaken if they, you know, it's, it's weird because I'm referencing a thing that you don't know and your listeners won't know uh, uh, until the special comes out, but it's not a Holocaust joke. It's a joke that references the Holocaust. Right, but, right. You know, so there are always going to be those people. And this person just, that was hearsay. That was like secondhand, thirdhand information, whatever, of somebody who probably didn't uh, quote my joke correctly. I would, I'd say there's about a hundred percent chance of that. And then what they take away with it is like, Hey, you're, that's really not cool. You shouldn't make fun. You know, you shouldn't make fun of, you know, the Holocaust or whatever. Right. So there's that thing, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting because it's, it's the amplification and the immediacy uh, that's different. You know, I, I, when I was a kid, I used to wait, for my dad to bring the newspaper home so I could find out who won the ball games the night before. Right. And, you know, now you can follow on your phone every pitch of every game, you know, if you want to. So that the amount of information and the immediacy, you know, clearly, and that you can now get comments from someone who wasn't even there and has no context. That's an interesting point. And, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, they probably saw that on a Facebook page or something uh, like who knows how they, you know, uh, found out that information. Uh, it probably wasn't somebody who called that person up. I mean, this literally took place, uh, 48 hours prior. And, uh, um, so, you know, that's, that's part of the, the, uh, what you have to navigate, but again, it's just, uh, it's a distraction. You, you, you do your material, you, you, can defend it or you can't or you won't or you don't have a good defense for it um and then uh but everything else is a is a distraction you know yeah yeah very interesting so there's so much ground to cover i just want to jump around a little bit uh what can you tell me david about the oj chronicles oh gosh i well the late great, brilliant, G- you know, all the words you used for me, uh, you should take them back and use them for Joe Frank. Uh, so Joe Frank was, uh, unfortunately he's gone now, but uh, absolutely brilliant, inventive, amazing uh, guy who did this, these radio, uh, I don't even know how to describe them. Some, sometimes they were, they were just monologues uh, with, uh, kind of ambient evocative music behind him. Uh, and he was, sometimes it was a story. Sometimes they would be like kind of almost what you would consider a sketch, but not overtly funny. Um, and he was a, he was just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man who, uh, had been doing this for decades and decades. And, uh, um, and he, uh, I don't know how he, reached out to me, but I was a fan and, um, uh, somehow he 
he somehow he got in touch with me and he uh, asked me if I wanted to collaborate on this thing where we kind of improvise and I would do this character um, that I had done in my standup and I had done it on Mr. Show where, um, you know, I closed my throat like this and then um, his name, uh, you know, in and amongst uh, the proprietary uh, uh, confines of a sketch world was Samson Delonega. Um, and it was just a character I used to do. And, uh, um, and he would interview me as uh, OJ's manservant um, uh, who was in the back of the car. Uh, and, um, and we did this thing and we probably, we did it until my, I couldn't talk anymore. <laughs> my throat was, uh, and we did it over the phone and he recorded it. And then that became known as, uh, it was one of his shows and he cut it into one of his shows and he's interviewing me and it became known as uh, part one of the OJ Chronicles. And then I, uh, uh, I did the character again. I think I did it three more times, two more times uh, for him. And uh, um, over the years, this is, this is spanning several years. Uh, and it was always really fun and it was really cool. And that's actually some stuff that I'm very proud of because uh, it was all improvised. And there's some really cool stuff. And it was all those moments where we're kind of arguing back and forth are very real. And because it's such a d markedly different character than I am, you know, this like uh, uh, older, uh, middle-aged, uh, older black man. Uh, I mean, it's just wildly not, and it's not anything I could do visually, obviously, because people would freak out. Um, so was, I did it in audio thing and it's really cool. It's a really cool thing. It's the, there, there were three episodes. There's OJ Chronicles one and two. And then there's another one. I can't remember the name of it that we, I reprised the character years later. Um, but he was, he's just, I urge all your listeners to find some Joe Frank and uh, yeah, he's just, he was just genius. We dug all this stuff up and just so, so funny. So you've been part and a central figure in three different properties that are absolutely seminal in comedy and, and incredible. Scary uh, movie two, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Uh, there you go. And, and yeah. I, I was thinking the Ben Stiller show, Mr. Show and Arrested Development, but we can sure. go, we can go wherever you want. But going back to the Ben Stiller show, I mean, incredibly talented people that you were working with. I think that was your first gig um, as a writer. Absolutely. Oh, I was in Boston and I was a mid season replacement for a writer. Uh, and, um, and Janine Garofalo was uh, instrumental in, in my getting me hired. I had, I'd hung out with her and Ben uh, when I was visiting LA and visiting her and doing some stand up and stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, got along with Ben, uh, uh, you know, immediately. And, uh, um, and we just hung out at a bar and, uh, I went back to Boston and then she said, you know, get me uh, a sample packet. And, you know, I don't even know if FedEx was around in those days, but like, get it to me, you know, air ship it, whatever. And, uh, you know, they're, they're talking about hiring, uh, uh, mid-season writer. And so I, I, put some stuff together, sent it. And then in, I mean, it was a really 
chaotic, cool thing. But I, I mean, it was trial by fire. I was thrown into the fire because I was, uh, you know, I was just a, a stand-up. Uh, I had nothing, you know, I was doing cross comedy and stuff. And then the next thing I know, I'm like, get, get to LA uh, by Monday and you start Monday and here's the deal. And I was like, oh shit. And uh, I literally had to get on a plane with like, you know, a, a little, what little luggage I had get it, you know, crash at a friend's and then uh, over Thanksgiving break, which was, for, you know, um, I think Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I had to fly back to Boston, load up my car with whatever would fit in there, give everything else away. And I drove in three and a half days, I drove from Boston to LA and I was in at work on Monday morning and, you know, learned uh, uh, a lot learned a lot. Uh, I had nothing, I'd never had anything to do with Hollywood or TV or any of that stuff, not even the West coast. I mean, I just was, it was just thrown in there and it was, and I was initially, I, I regret, I had a bit of uh, attitude that I regret. Uh, that was, you know, just a younger kind of, uh, you know, like TV is beneath me type of attitude. Um, which is, which was silly and, and sophomoric and, uh, you know, and it, and very quickly that, that I got that, you know, smacked the shit out of me. <laughs> you know, I got that, right. uh, that was, uh, beaten out of me as well, as well. It should have been. Um, so very, very quickly I was, I, I learned a valuable lesson there and, and, you know, those, some of those guys are, you know, I'm still very close with, you know, and obviously Bob and I, you know, uh, went on to create some couple of things. You sure did. But that, that was quite a writer's room. Talk about who, who you were sitting around the table with. Well, um, my room was uh, Rob Cohen, who's one of the nicest guys in the business, and um, Brent Forrester, uh, who were both exceedingly nice to me and very helpful. And, uh, um, and I shared an office with them and they were just, they just were, I mean, really went out of their way to make me feel comfortable and good. And, uh, and then uh, there was Dino Stamatopoulos who went on to write for Mr. Show and produce and Bob Odenkirk and Jeff Kahn, I think was in that room. And um, gosh, were there other writers? Am I, am I, and then obviously uh, Judd and Ben and, uh, who else was am i skipping a writer i hope i'm not um but though those that's what those um, were amazing and and yeah. you're 28 29 years old and all of a sudden you're winning an emmy award for writing yeah i mean uh i mean let's be honest i i think i i contributed uh maybe seven percent of <laughs> to that show if that much the the show that actually we won because of Bob. Bob had a couple really brilliant uh, sketches on there on the 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 episode we submitted. But um, uh, yeah, it was it was you know the the greatest thing that came out of it was my partnership with Bob, my eventual partnership with Bob. So right. that was great. Um, and and you know I it was a, a foot in the door, which is what you need. And it was making a lot of really good, close, uh, friends, uh, and friends will, that's, 
the number one lesson or, or thing I would tell people if they, you know, like, what advice do you have? There's, there's always just get up there and do it or write. If you want to be a writer, just write, but really make friends with a lot of people and be a good friend and be a good person and friends will help each other out and they'll want to work with good people and they'll want to work with cool people. And, you know, they won't want to work with assholes and, uh, and, and, and also lose your ego, get rid of your ego yeah. and, check it and, uh, and collaborate and, you know, so you mentioned Stephen Wright, you mentioned Andy Kaufman. Um, somewhere I also read that you love Lou Costello. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid. Uh, so my dad was from England and, uh, and you know, that whole side of the family were from Leeds and he was the youngest of five kids. So uh, he had an accent, but all my relatives who all, all of them, uh, settled in the Bronx initially. There was one brother that went to Long Island and then uh, uh, eventually one of the, the, my aunt was in the Bronx, but, uh, or no, they were all in the Bronx, I guess. Uh, uh, except for, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. But, um, but they all had really thick accents and the, it was Northern. It was, you know, Yorkshire accent, which is, you know, very sing-songy up and down and, um, and my dad was very, uh, um, you know, uh, he was extroverted and he was uh, very, you know, he, he'd be kind of silly and he would entertain and he, he liked comedy and he introduced me to, you know, uh, Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello and the Marx Brothers and all that kind of stuff. And I really, really, really gravitated towards, uh, I can't tell you why, but I loved uh, Abbott and Costello when I was a kid. It was my, I mean, I, I wasn't even interested in Laurel and Hardy or the Marx Brothers and, and you know, probably the Marx Brothers might've been a little more sophisticated, but, uh, you know, and things I didn't get, but the, I, I, for whatever reason, Abbott and Costello and basically Lou Costello, because, but Abbott didn't do anything for me, but, uh, I just, and I saw every movie and I, those, the terrible TV show, you know, I would, I was way into that stuff. I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Mike, Mike, the cop, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that also. And um, where I was sort of going in my head was you can't think about Luke Costello without also thinking about Bud Abbott as one of the great duos. And I certainly Costello was the funny man. But that partnership that you started with Bob, that's in the same rarefied air. The, the work that you two have done together, starting with Mr. Show, and I know you brought it back in different iterations over the years, I guess most recently about five or six years ago. That's some of the greatest stuff that anybody's ever done, David. It was good. It was, uh, it was good. I think part of the success of its... Um, longevity is that we had a, we had very few rules, but we had a couple hard ones. And one was, uh, we, we didn't want to uh, do reoccurring characters too much unless it made sense. We had some place for that character to a reason for them to be there. Um, and another, uh, another hard rule was we, we didn't want to do straight parody and we, we didn't want to do like, 
you know, if you watch a, a SNL from like 1989, it's, it's hard to watch. It's like, you don't get the references. It's like whoever was kind of popular in the moment, you know, and pop culture shit. So it was really important to, if we wanted to make fun of like Paris Hilton, you don't make fun of Paris. You, you don't have a character that's Paris Hilton. You have an archetype and you have a context for it. Um, and we did that a lot. Uh, so that, uh, and I think that's kind of helped it, um, you know, feel like it's not so dated, you know, um, and that was an important thing. And that, uh, that also stemmed from, you know, Bob's experience on SNL, which wasn't very good. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I think I, you know, I think it's, uh, we did some really cool stuff and we, Bob and I were both huge Monty Python fans. Um, and I especially, you know, again, because my dad introduced me to it and there was the uh, English connection and I was huge Anglophile when I was a kid and man, you know, even young adult. And, um, uh, and we bonded over that, the Python sensibility and what they did and how uh, transgressive it was. And, uh, um, and incorporated incorporated a lot of that philosophy into Mr. Show, and specifically with the transitions. But we wanted to go one to go a little deeper with the transition idea. And, and you've also played these sort of cameo roles that are so varied and diverse. I remember something you did in two thousand six with the Beastie Boys, where you do sort of these one off characters. Does that all go back to the early days in stand-up and doing characters? Um, I mean, I, I, I clearly have a love for it and, uh, uh, you know, a, a, albeit limited uh, talent for it. Um, and it's fun to do. And, uh, you know, when, the, when those other things crop up, that's because, you know, a mutual friend goes, hey, there's this really cool thing I'm doing. Uh, do you want to do it? And you're like, uh, do I want to hang out with the Beastie Boys for a couple of days and do this improv of this silly character? Uh, fuck yeah. <laughs> you don't have yeah. to, you know, uh, absolutely. And when Michelle Gondry calls you and says, hey, will you play a, uh, my giant poop? And you go, yep, you got it. I don't have to know anything about it. I'm signed up. I'm ready to go. And, right. uh, and, and I'd say, you know, roughly 90% of those things that I've done have happened that way where it's like, you know, uh, I remember, I, I mean, I can think of a bunch of them, Todd Haynes, like, Hey, Todd Haynes is doing, don't, don't say, tell me anymore. I'm in, I'm, I'm good. I'm whatever right. he wants me to do. I'm there. Right. You know, so. Right. And can we talk about um, Arrested Development and your character is Dr. Tobias Funke, which is um, my favorite. And uh, how did you get involved? I think the original vision was more of a, of a lesser role for Tobias. And I think yeah. it was what you brought to the part that made him, you know, a seminal part of the show. Yeah. I mean, it, it they wanted me to read for, uh, they wanted me to look at um, Buster and, uh, and also Job. I think they were having uh, trouble casting Job. And I think initially they wanted me uh, to read for Buster. And I had just moved to New York after having been in uh, LA for uh, close to 10 years. And the last three of those years, I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. And I finally found an opportunity where 
I literally didn't have any work. I had nothing lined up. I was like, I'm fuck it. I'm moving. I'm going. If I don't go now, I'm going to be stuck here for another five years, whatever. So I moved. I was having the time of my life. I was just having so much fun. I had this uh, awesome new girlfriend and everything was great. And I was you know, living in the East Village. I just bought a place. And um, and then I get, you know, which happens a bunch. You get a uh, people going, hey, there's this really great project, this cool script, uh, this guy, um, you know, he, he's, he's, his name's Mitch Hurwitz, he's really cool, these two cool guys named the Russo brothers, or, you know, and I was, I fought it, like, dude, I just moved here, I'm not going back to LA, I'm not, and they're like, just, we're going to send you the script, just read it, uh, okay, and I got it, and of course, it's the coolest, funniest thing, but I wasn't, I didn't gravitate towards Buster, but Tobias, I just knew immediately who this guy was. And I had an immediate idea. And I, so I went back and I said, okay, here's, here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'm not interested in Buster or Job. I didn't understand. Uh, but Tobias, I get, you know, I, I know exactly who that guy is. And, but I only want to do it part-time. And they're like, yeah, well, you know, Tobias wasn't meant to be like uh, part of the ensemble. And I was like, okay, great. So I'll do six episodes. And I talked to Mitch and I talked to the Russo brothers and I told them exactly what I thought about Tobias and, and what he should look like and how he should dress. And they, and I, and I pitched it as like a cross between the East coast, like Dick Cavett type of guy who's, you know, has this kind of, hmm, he just, understands every reference and makes makes uh uh references that you don't understand and when he hears a, a joke with uh Kierkegaard as a punchline he he doesn't laugh he goes mm, 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 <laughs> and then a cross between that kind of guy and a Marin County West Coast touchy-feely new agey kind of uh therapist kind of dude and then but just like a marriage of those two uh archetypes and you know and i pitched you know the mustache and dressing and all that and they were uh totally on board and i went and we shot the pilot and i <laughs> i remember exactly where i was and i shot the pilot and I was on that little bridge. There's a, do you know where the Beverly center is? Sure. And, and so across from it is like the Beverly connection, I believe it's called. And they had this little bridge uh, in the back of it. Um, and I called my, you know, brand new girlfriend, you know, and I was like, Hey, so this show is amazing. It's going to be amazing. And I cannot be part-time on it. I need to be full-time. It's, it's, I'm going to have to do this and I'm going to have to move to LA for, you know, whatever it is, six months or so, but it, this is going to be an exceptional show. And that's what happened. The writing on the show and, uh, and Mitch, I got a chance a couple of years ago, uh, my son Benny and I went to just for laughs in Montreal mm -hmm. and we got to see Ted Sarandos did an interview with Mitch Hurwitz. Uh, oh. It was absolutely fascinating. The writing. And Mitch is just, well, different. Again, as an outsider and a layman looking in, but the depth of comedy, the number of jokes in every oh, yeah, episode. The, how they're woven in and hidden. And uh, and I mean, I this is absolutely true. I'm not exaggerating. 
there were forums, right? There were things that would uh, dissect the shows. And I didn't catch, after having shot them and filmed them, I and having read the scripts, there were, there were I would say, 30% of the jokes that I never caught until I went on these forums, these chat things, and people were pointing out these jokes. So I was like, oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't catch a third of those things. Amazing. Yeah, no, the, de- the depth of it. And the ensemble cast. I mean, what a cast you worked with. I know that's we just one lost. Of the greatest, that's one of the greatest casting. I mean, as I was saying before, like when I got the script and I just didn't get, I had no handle on Job at all. And then you can't think of anybody but Will Arnett. I mean, who else would be Joe? I mean, you just wouldn't be the same. And no. that applies to every single character. And how about the amazing prescient uh, ability to cast Michael Sarah and Alia Shockett, who grew up to be these amazing, thoughtful, uh, uh, phenomenally talented actors and writers and creators. I mean, you know, they were kids, they were little kids. And I mean, it was just everything with everybody. The cast was phenomenal. Food like a banger in the mouth. I forgot, here in the States, you call it a sausage in the mouth. We just call it a sausage. Oh, I can just taste those meaty leading man parts in my mouth. Oh, come on. Don't leave your Uncle T-Bag hanging. I'll be your wingman. (laughs) Even if it means me taking a chubby, I will suck it up. For there's a man inside me, and only when he's finally out can I walk free of pain. Come on, let's see some bananas and nuts. Oh. Perhaps we should just pull their pants off. Oh, I've been in the film business for a while, but I just can't seem to get one in the can. I wouldn't mind kissing that man between the cheeks. Tobias, you blow hard. And the whole subplot, if you will, of you and Carl Weathers. That was unbelievable. That was fun, yeah. Just tremendous. Uh, And what was it like when you came back for the seasons? I guess famously, it ended early. Uh, um, and then yeah. the fans insisted that it come back over time and Netflix allowed that to happen. Well, and then the, I mean, the, the, that's the mitigating factor is there, you know, in, in the interim, there was a massively popular, uh, uh, well-funded international streaming conglomerate <laughs> you know, that, existed <laughs> or that didn't exist before. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I guarantee you, uh, Arrested would have been on the air for several more years if uh, it had been if it had come out one year later because DVD sales they hadn't really uh, accounted for DVD sales. And then, like the year we were canceled, you know, they started the DVDs like just you know went through the roof, and uh, that was a huge you know um, it helped Fox and uh, and there's a, a little mom and pop. Uh, company that's uh these the, the just it's a family they're struggling they're called the murdochs and it helped get them some money to yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, to do all the good work that they're doing um and you know so netflix that was that was so much fun to do and i i you know it when i loved the idea that mitch was going for with season four with the the way you know uh, you know, it was a big, crazy, trippy puzzle that you would watch. And right. um, and it took me, 
about seven episodes to understand how to watch it. And then I got really comfortable with watching it. And I, I prefer it to the way that they re-edited it to, to make it all kind of uh, make linear sense. Um, I thought it was a really cool experiment. And, I, and, I, and I, I didn't get it at first, but then, as I said, you know, about six, seven episodes in, I was like, oh, I see what to look for. I see how to watch this. And um, season five, I haven't watched. Uh, I don't know if I will. Uh, it didn't feel very good. <laughs> um, yeah. It was difficult. And uh, I, I'm not going to go into it. But uh, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was, that was a, that was not, that was a tough one. But season four, that when you going to India and Lindsay leans back and you, you know, on the airplane. Oh, I and, love that stuff. Oh I my love God. That kind of storytelling. Wow. Was that funny? Um, and can we talk about a character that is also uh, uh, magical and that's Todd Margaret, which has had a couple yeah. different lives. And mm -hmm. uh, that's very, uh, that's, that's you, David, that's all you. Mm -hmm. Well, that, uh, I, yeah, I really, really loved that show. Uh, and I loved all the process. Of, I loved the writing of it and then shooting it and then doing the post on it were, were all fun uh, processes of it. But I, um, that came together. I was uh, doing stand-up. I was doing a two-week residency at the 100 Club on Oxford Street in London. And uh, after a show one night... Um, these two women come up to me and they're, you know, uh, um, hi, um, we're with channel, uh, uh, you know, RDF and, uh, I can't do the accent, but, um, <laughs> anyway, they were, uh, uh, nice and gave me a card if I ever wanted to, you know, do a co-production U S and British, you know, and I didn't really think much of it. And I, I was, and then a couple of days later, I was like, hey, wait, I, those ladies gave me an offer to pitch a thing. I, I should do this. And I knew that I couldn't do an effective British accent. So I would have to play somebody who was in England, who was American. Why, why would I, what was that? And I know they have a different, you know, they have their, their seasons are six, they, their series are six episodes long. I would have to do a pilot for this thing that they, they channel four did where they commission a bunch of comedy shows, you shoot them. And then like, I think they air four of them and then a handful of them are picked to, to go to series. And, uh, you know, I just, I just came upon the idea of how to do the show and it's, it's just really cool storytelling and Sean Pye, who was my co-writer on the first series, uh, who went on to write There She Goes, uh, which is based on a true story, um, based on his life. But, uh, and then Mark Chappell in season two, series two and series three, uh, just created this really cool trippy thing. And, and the, the first two, it was, it was always designed to end where it ended at the end of season two, where um, I guess I'll go ahead and give it away but pretty much everybody dies. And uh, um, it was that was where it's supposed to end. And then, you know, it aired on IFC and didn't really do that much. And it just sort of, you know, it was, it was, it, Todd Margaret has had a, uh, the reaction to it was uh, similar to a lot of my stuff where there, it wasn't really, 
people weren't really on the fence about it. People felt very strongly. It's kind of like my standup. They either love me or they hate me. And with Todd Margaret, it was one of those things where some people loved it and some people hated it, didn't get it, didn't like it. It was too cringy. It was uh, dumb or whatever it was. And, um, uh, and I will say that the first episode is really hard for me to watch. It's not very good. And uh, there's a couple reasons for it. But the, if you can get past the first episode with, and also understand that, you know, this is the dumbest guy on the planet and you just have to give in to that idea that this guy is so dumb. Um, uh, you know, it gets it gets really good. There's it's I'm really happy with the storytelling, how we laid everything out, how things pay off way, way down the line. Um, which is, which is influenced by Arrested Development too. And, um, and then, so it just kind of came out and that was that. And then uh, because of Netflix, our old buddy Netflix again, uh, they were airing the show on Netflix and then it found this new life. And like even internationally, people were watching it and it, uh, it just started doing huge numbers uh, in, you know, relatively for a thing that was on IFC. And then, so IFC got in touch with us like, hey, how about doing a third series? And I said, how? They're, they're all done. Everybody's dead. You can't. And then Mark Chappell, within hours, came up with the brilliant, brilliant, crazy, trippy meta thing for series three. That is that a when you watch all three series together, back to back to back, it is the coolest trippiest thing and i'm really proud of it and that that was mark chapel's idea that was all mark uh who came up with the idea for series three which i was beyond me i was like i, I i'm not going to do it i can't imagine a reason how you do it and then he came up with the way you do it Absolutely. and it became series through and, and and it's it's such a cool thing Brilliant. So your career is so interesting. You've done sort of a, uh, not a little bit of everything, but a lot of everything in film and television and stand up and albums and Emmys and Grammy nominations and craft Ooh. services. So, uh, but with all you've done, are there things, David, that, that you still want to do that you haven't gotten to, or is it just doing more funny stuff? Well, yeah, doing more funny stuff, doing more. Um, I did a couple of uh, dramatic things for the first time uh, fairly recently, and that was fun and challenging and, and interesting. And I do more of that. Um, uh, you know, I think my I would I would one of the things uh, uh, that I missed, I was surprised that I missed during the pandemic was, I mean, there were some obvious things that I missed, like doing standup and, and other things, but I was surprised at how I really missed being in a writer's room and breaking a story and having the boards and the index cards and going, okay, here, we, you break the story and then you put the cards up and you go, hey, what if this happens here? And what if, I love the construction of that stuff. And I miss being in a room with, you know, uh, a couple other smelly, you know, uh, sweaty guys trying to figure this stuff out. And you have those bursts of laughter followed by 20 minutes of frustration where you're like, how the fuck are we going to, if, if it's uh, Sunday, then everything's closed and he can't get there because he's 40 miles away and his car's, how are we going to make that out? You know, figuring that shit out is so much fun. Um, and I miss, yeah, I miss being in a writer's room. I miss creating that way, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we all do. Has the pandemic been really hard on you? How, 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 you know, mental health wise, I know I've had some real challenging times. How have you managed? Uh, Um, There was, there was a, uh, the hardest part, you know, there was, it was hard in ways that it was hard for everybody. Um, And certainly not working was, was, uh, frustrating and hard. And, um, and also, you know, I, my wife and I, you know, part of the success of our marriage, I think is that, uh, you know, we got to go away. I'd go and, you know, go out on the road and come back in a week, or, you know, I'd go out and do these things or she'd go work on something and, you know, being, you know, with each other 24 seven for roughly a year and a half was, uh, you know, I'm not the easiest guy to, to be with constantly. And, um, uh, and, but in particular, we were in Toronto, uh, which I was looking forward to. My wife went up there to work. And once we, it was, we understood that the COVID was getting worse and in Canada, which I assumed would have its shit together, did not. And I got, I had an open work permit because we knew we were going to have to move the family up there. We have a, a four-year-old daughter. And, and uh, so I was thinking, oh, I'll go to Toronto, which is a great city. And I've, I've, I've done plenty of stand-up there. I really like it. And I recorded an album there. And, uh, um, and I was like, I'll just do a residency and I'll just do shows. It'll be fun, blah, blah, blah. And then they just shut down. We got up there in, in mid-January and they were it was stay at home orders and we had a quarantine and was, we were in a stranger's house and with a four-year-old with all this crazy energy and they never opened up. I mean, it was, it was brutal. And, uh, and they just made so many, uh, I mean, Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario was just all over the place. And, uh, um, I don't even, it's not, it's less about the country and more about what Ontario and Doug Ford just didn't have their shit. It just, it felt like every decision they made was wrong. And we were, I mean, nothing's open, no bars, no restaurants, no museums, no nothing. You'd have to go out in line in the snow or cold rain outside of, you know, Canadian tire, which is like their target times two, um, put stuff on an app and then you wait in line to go pick it up. It was, it was outdoors, you know, in a line with 25 other people and you wait, sit there in the snow and to pick up whatever you had to pick up. And, uh, and it was, it was really depressing and hard. And, and uh, we got lucky. We had one family that we were allowed to pod with, you know, a, a family you could pod with certain people um, that was okay. And so they had two kids and so that was that was a lifesaver for my daughter and she got to hang out with the kids and and you know but it was and they were a lovely lovely couple awesome couple but you know it was the same on the weekend it was the same people uh and you never saw anybody else and it was you know six months was really hard it was really really hard you know yeah and now you're back in front of audiences. Yeah. You know, that's gotta be, that's gotta feel, that's gotta feel, feel I mean, terrific. I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that when I, I came back the second I could, cause my wife had to stay and, and keep shooting. And uh, 
I brought our daughter back and got back to, to Brooklyn, her life here, her nanny. Um, and uh, it was, I mean, just immediately, like I was in a better mood. I was a happier person. I, I mean, I just, it was just like a weight was lifted immediately. As soon as I got back to Brooklyn, they have the open streets thing. And we, and I live around the corner from one, one of them and took my daughter up there. She got on her little scooter and we went and, you know, everybody, every families are all outdoors, eating, drinking together. There's bands playing, there's people on stilts for real, you know, and, uh, and I was like, oh, my. I mean, it was just the polar opposite of being in Toronto during the stay at home orders. And uh, and it was just such a treat. And uh, I mean, and then I did a set within, I don't know, 72 hours of being back. And I was just like, I almost I got emotional, you know, and uh, and then I just booked as many shows as I could. I was like, let's do this. This is it's just it was it was life saving, I'd say. It's a long, well, for a stand-up, it's an eternity. A year and a half is an eternity for a stand-up to not get to do it. You yeah, know, it's great. This yeah. has been a joy to, to talk to you. And um, uh, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this, David. It's a great story. And uh, I thank you for sharing it with us. Oh, my pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Thank you.